You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, hey guys, good morning. I am Lance, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. Well, back in 2006, I learned a lesson that would save my life again and again. I went through lifeguard training here at Huntington State Beach, and it was an eight-day, all-day training uh, that covered a mixture of, of physical skills, medical skills, and general lifeguarding skills. Now, one of the skills that they taught us was how to approach a drowning victim. So when someone is you know, going under, how do you approach them? Now, often those people are very panicky, which makes sense. They're trying to keep their head above water. So uh, what you're supposed to do is, first off, you don't get too close. Because if you get too close with someone who is in that type of environment, who's panicking, trying to keep their head above water, they will grab onto anything, and they'll dunk you uh, if, you're, if you're not careful, if you get too close. Uh, the second thing we were taught was you always lead with your buoy. So lifeguards, they have a buoy attached to them. You always uh, throw the buoy to them. That way they grab onto that first and not onto you. Now, one tip they told us, they said, um, sometimes people, if they're really panicking, they will grab that buoy, and then they'll start pulling on the strap, um, which is attached to you as a lifeguard because they're trying to just grab onto anything they can. So they taught us how to quickly get out of that a buoy and kind of pull away from the person, just let them float. You know, when I heard that instruction, I thought, man, that is so helpful. I will never get too close to somebody. That's, that's really good to know. Now, on the last day of lifeguard training, we were practicing our rescue technique, te- techniques as, uh, as lifeguard trainees, uh, just getting to victims, pulling them to shore, practicing those skills. As we were doing this, we spotted two boogie boarders, uh, just kind of random beachgoers, and uh, they were turned around trying to come to shore, and they were in a, a pretty big rip current that was pulling them out. Uh, they didn't really seem to know what they were doing, um, but uh, pretty soon after we were watching them, they jumped off their boards and started swimming. As soon as we saw their first swim stroke, we realized, we got to go. Someone's got to go. So lifeguard instructor told me, looked at me and said, go get them. So I was, you know, it's the first rescue. I was a little trainee. I started running out there and started uh, swimming to the first guy. A few other trainees went after Uh, the second guy. And I will never forget the face of panic that was on this guy's face. He was just sheer panicked and struggling to keep his head above water. So I got to him, and I was kind of panicky a little bit, and I got too close to him. And he, I got close enough where he he started to grab for me and started to touch me. And I, I quickly pulled away and realized, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to do that. And then I realized, oh, I'm supposed to lead with my buoy. So I had my buoy behind me, so I went and grabbed my buoy and threw it at him. I said, grab onto that buoy. And so he was like, grabbed onto it, started pulling on the strap. The same thing we've been told. Started pulling the strap. I started getting closer to him. I quickly get out of the strap and, and, uh, and, and pull away from him. And so he was completely panicked. I was starting to get kind of panicked. <laughs> and I told him, hey, calm down. So we sat there for, for a minute. And he calmed down. And I calmed down. And I was able to pull him to shore. Now, in the next six years of lifeguarding, I never got too close to somebody again. The guy had gotten close enough to touch me, and if he'd gotten on top of me, that that would have been really bad. So my training that day, it went from something that was true, that was a helpful lesson, to something that was a reality embedded in how I lifeguarded for my whole lifeguard career. Now, in our lives, there are things that we view as true and as helpful, but often those truths, they don't really impact our lives. Uh, Then there are things that we treat uh, as both true and real that we are well aware of the consequences of. 
Now, in this message series, we are talking about this idea of true to real. And specifically, we're looking at how the truth of God's word becomes a reality that affects our daily decisions. Today, we are talking about real Christians. So how can you tell who a real Christian is? Who thinks God is simply a true concept or a true idea? And who is actually operating as if God were involved in every detail of life? You know, on a Sunday morning like this, it can be really difficult to know. Uh, when Christianity first began, you could be put to death for believing in Jesus. So it was pretty clear about who was serious just based on who showed up. Now today, in the U.S., we can freely and openly gather like this, and we are so grateful that the persecution that happened in early Christianity and the persecution that still happens around the world, that it doesn't happen here today. But it does make it a little difficult to know who's really committed to following Jesus and who isn't. You know, nowadays, there are all sorts of people who claim to be Christians. There's celebrities, there's sports stars, you know, our neighbors, our co-workers, even our, our professors. Now, are they real believers in Jesus Christ? Do they follow him? Now, a more important question is, am I really following Jesus? Am I actually living like that? And how do I know? So 1 John, we're working through the book of 1 John in this series, and he gives us some really helpful answers to the question of who a real Christian is. Now, my goal today, my hope is that we don't just make a list of celebrities that we think are real Christians and which ones aren't. Uh, my hope is that for this to be a real self-evaluation today, for, for you to assess how you measure up to the standard of what John shares. So we're working through what he wrote, and today we're going to work through the passage, 1 John 2, 3 through 17. So the decision to be a Christian is a decision of love or of commitment, similar to a marriage commitment. It shows up in action. You know, if you love someone, you will take them seriously. You will spend time with them. Love it's not just about lovey-dovey feelings. It's actually action-oriented. It's sacrificial. It's willing to put a person's interests above your own. In my marriage, I can't say that I love my wife and then continue to do whatever I want. That claim of love, it needs to show up in real life. And what shows up in real life, that should be growing over time. The longer I'm married, the more I learn about what my wife likes and dislikes and the things that I do that help her feel loved and the things that I do that don't help her feel loved. You know, the, the relationship with my wife, it's similar to a relationship with God. My relationship with God should affect how I live my life, and it should grow over time. So how does this occur? How does the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ work its way into the reality of our lives? What happens inside out? Real Christians change from the inside out. Now, this is one overarching principle, and uh, this basically says actions show what is true of the heart. So 1 John 2, 3, our first verse for the day, he says this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Now, this verse is saying that if you truly believe in Jesus, you will do what he says. The source of action, uh, though, is, it's internal. The change occurs, has to occur on the inside first. So how you change looks something like this. There's this little diagram up on the screen. So an idea comes into your head. And this is where you first determine if something is true or false. Now, if you determine that that idea is true and you believe it to be a reality, 
that idea will move into your heart. Now, when I talk about heart, I'm not talking about the literal beating organ in your body. In the Bible, the heart is described as the center of who you are. It's your decision-making core. So the heart is where core beliefs are. It's where we determine if truth will work its way into how we think life actually works, into reality. And then out of the heart flows external behavior, flows our actions. So what you actually believe is proven by your actions, not just by what we say. The Proverbs 27, 19 says this really well. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. So the heart is the source of a life. It's the source of action. As this verse says, how we live reflects what's in our hearts. And we don't like to admit that fact, especially when we do wrong, when what comes out is not good. You know, we don't like to admit that, and often when what comes natural to us isn't good. Now, like every marriage, my wife and I, we will get sideways with each other every once in a while. And whenever we get into an argument, usually afterwards, we will need to clear up our relationship. Early in our marriage, uh, a common thing that my wife and I would, would both say is, you know, I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm really sorry. We would use that phrase, I didn't mean to hurt you. After a while of using those words, though, we realized that actually we did mean to hurt each other. We were trying to use hurtful words. We, we had to admit and realize that actually what we were saying was hurtful because in our hearts we actually wanted to cause some damage, and that was wrong. We didn't want to admit that, and it's hard to admit that our actions flow from our hearts, especially when those actions are not what we would want them to be. Now, since our actions flow from what's in our hearts, the heart needs to be the focus of change before a changed life is observed. Now, this is how it is when someone first comes to know Christ, first comes to know Jesus. That decision, it has implications on their real life. So whenever I have conversations with people who are, they're in the process of making that decision to follow Jesus. They're sort of considering it. And I, I will usually ask this question. Well, what would have to change about your life if you decided to follow Jesus? Now, if they come back to me and say, you know, nothing really comes to mind. You know, I'm, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. Or, you know, they, they, they have some, some list of things, but they don't really feel like they need to change. Then they don't really fully understand that yet. They, they haven't really become convinced enough to change their life. They don't see this as real yet. Real belief, it changes our behavior. Now, a common mistake that Christians make is actually getting this point backwards. Uh, we focus on changing the outside behavior without doing anything about our hearts. You know, we attend a Sunday worship service, or we attend growth groups, or we even volunteer on a team because that's just what a good Christian is supposed to do. Now, those are all really good things, but they can just turn into external actions that we do. It can turn into simply blending in rather than really about wrestling with, hey, what do I believe and what does God say and, and how can I conform more to what God says? Now, heart change, it's not a formula. It's not a vending machine where you can kind of put in a godly idea and out comes life change. It takes individual effort and it also takes the grace of the Holy Spirit working in our lives for change to occur. Now, in the next verses, John describes uh, two ways that God works this inside-out 
kind of change. So our next point is that real Christians, they take God's words seriously. 1 John 2.4 says this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. So the Bible, it's not just a book of good suggestions. It's more like a map through the rocky terrain of life. So if you claim to follow God, but you don't do what God says, then you aren't telling the truth. You're claiming one thing, but you're doing another. You're claiming to have a map, but you're not using it. If I walked up to you and told you that I am a champion bodybuilder, what would you say? There'd probably be a bit of you know, awkward laughter like this, like, uh, I don't think you are. Where, where are all the muscles? Well, that's how it is where people claim to be Christians, but they're not doing, any, do, doing what God says. They're, they aren't treating God's words as reality. And even churches, they can claim to be following God, but they're very clearly not because they aren't following what he says. You know, in my marriage, if I told my wife that I loved her, but I never helped her around the house, I never spent time with her, I never kissed her, do you think she would believe me? Saying I love you is different than doing I love you. And this passage is saying a similar thing. Saying I know God but then not doing what he says proves that you are a liar. Now, John continues, and he explains a few practices for taking God's words seriously. So we're going to walk through uh, these three practices to taking God's words seriously. The first is to understand God's words. 1 John 2.5 says, But if anybody obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. So to obey what God says, you have to first know what God says, and then you can do what God says. Now, one way to do this is by reading the Bible. You know, coming on Sunday mornings is great, but it, it doesn't replace the individual effort that's needed to understand the Word of God for yourself. Now, I will read my Bible most mornings. Um, not every morning, but most mornings I try and get up and, and read my Bible. And I have a few different uh, versions, a few different practices that I will do based on how much time I have that morning. Uh, so I have a five-minute version where if I wake up late or I have something to get to earlier than normal, uh, and then I have a 20 to 30-minute version, which is what I uh, most commonly do. That's, that's the goal, to try and, try and do that. And then I have a longer version uh, that I'll do if I have more time in, in the day. So I want to describe, just for example's sake, what my quick five-minute version is. So I will, for my five-minute version, the quick version, I'll read through a chapter in Proverbs that corresponds to that day of the month, and I'll pray through it. So today is July 10th. So actually this morning, I woke up and I did this, because this is a little earlier day, earlier day than normal. So uh, I read through Proverbs 10 today, and I prayed through the verses that stood out to me. So for example, Proverbs 10.4 says this, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. So I would... As I'm reading the, the, the chapter, I would read that, and then I would pray something like, God, help me to not be lazy today. Help me to be diligent in the work that you've given me to do today. And then I would continue to read, and as verses stand out, I would pray something similar to, to what I just prayed uh, for Proverbs 10, 4. Now, as we read God's word, we're looking for ways to apply it. You know, the Proverbs 10, 4 verse, for example, it reminds me not to be lazy today, but to be diligent. 
Now, throughout the day, I will run into times when I want to be lazy. I don't want to be diligent. And it's more likely that I will be diligent if I had read that and prayed that earlier in the day. As we take time to understand God's words, we are taking God seriously. The result of understanding God's words and believing them to be real is that our lives are changed. You know, if I run as someone who claims to be a Christian, but they never read their Bible, I honestly become suspicious of how seriously are, are you taking God? So real Christians, they take time to understand God's word, the Bible. Now, the second way to take God's words seriously is to live as Jesus did. The first John 2, 6 says this, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So Jesus is the example of a life lived perfectly. Every day, for us, it's an opportunity to practice living like Jesus did. And to live in this verse, it means to continue in a certain state, condition, or activity. This is not just a one-time choice. It's a continuation of choices, a continued activity that requires constant attention. So Jesus lived by continually doing two things, doing good and refusing evil. And we should do the same. Now, he did this perfectly. We are imperfect. We have, sh we have fallen short of the standard of perfection. So uh, how do we follow Jesus if we've already failed the perfection test? Well, how we follow him is by making progress. So success in living as Jesus did is measured in progress, not perfection. Progress in doing the good that God has given us to do that day and in refusing to do the evil that God has told us to stay away from. Success or failure, it's not determined by one act. It's about your way of life. So we are all going to sin again. None of us is perfect. We're all going to sin again. And when we do, we clear it up and we keep moving forward. So if you're living in a way that is outside of the bounds of what Jesus would do, continuing in a lifestyle that is sinful, then that means for, for you that his words are not real yet. And similarly, doing the right thing one time, well, that's a great start but you wouldn't consider that a way of life. So it's about the pattern of how we live. Now, in the next verses, John gives us a picture of why taking God's words seriously is a matter of reality, not just ideas that we agree with. He picks up the picture of light and darkness that has already been introduced earlier in his letter. He says this, 1 John 2.8, The darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. So Jesus is often described as the light of the world. The Gospel of John, which was written by the same author as 1 John, uh, he describes Jesus as the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So he illuminated what was in the darkness, Jesus did, which helped people see a way out of the darkness. So it's like we're standing in a dark room, and we were given a flashlight. So I was in Yosemite a couple weeks ago, camping with my family, and it's, it's a beautiful place. We had a great time there, and in the middle of the night while we were camping, I had to get up and go use the restroom. Now, when I walked out of the tent, it was pitch black. I mean, you're out in the middle of the wilderness, and there's no, there's no lights out there, so it was pitch black. I couldn't see anything. So thankfully, I had this flashlight. It was very helpful. I was able to turn it on and navigate 
my way through the campsite, not stumble over myself. So I actually want to bring this Yosemite illustration to this room. So we're going to turn the lights off in just a second as a warning to you. Uh, So the idea here is that without Jesus, we are in darkness. Have you ever tried to walk in total darkness? It's, It's not very pretty. So all right, let's go ahead and turn the lights out. So this is our world without Jesus, in, in total darkness. I mean, for a lot of you, if you put your hand in front of your, in front of your face, you, you can't see that. So we, all, we can navigate by feel. So if I asked you guys to get up and go meet somebody new, it would be chaotic. How would you find that person? It would, it would be, be kind of crazy in here. But then Jesus came into the world and provided light. So what, is, what, what does light do? Light, it illuminates reality. So I can now see what reality is. I'm trying not to shine you guys in the face. So if I'm wanting to get off the front of the stage, I can see, oh, there's this ledge right here. I'm glad I didn't walk off that stage. There's also, okay, so if I, I can kind of see around here and I can see, oh, there's some stairs back there. So if I want to navigate down, I should probably go towards the stairs. That's really helpful to know. You know, I can also see my notes, which is very helpful. Helpful for you guys, helpful for me. <laughs> so light, it, it illuminates reality. So when, when we come to know Jesus, he illuminates the way forward for us. He is like the ultimate moral flashlight. The path becomes clear when we follow him. So, but he only lights up the path as we follow him. If we veer away our path becomes dark. So it's as if Jesus is holding a flashlight and we need to walk behind him. If we start veering off into the darkness, we'll start to stumble. All right, you can go ahead and turn the lights back on. So if somebody is stumbling around in the dark, they clearly don't have a flashlight. The real Christians, they navigate life the way that Jesus did. They follow his example of doing good and refusing evil. So to take God's words seriously, you have to understand them. You have to be careful to live as Jesus did, following his example. And then finally, you have to engage in a local church community. This is the the third point in that section. Engage in a local church community. So God not only uses his word to light, to, to be a light for us, but he also reflects his light through other Christians to help us navigate. And John continues his light and darkness illustration in the next set of verses, in 1 John 2, 9 through 11. It says this, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. And when I was in Yosemite, if I came back to my tent all scraped up and bruised up, my wife would ask, did you use the flashlight? Did the flashlight work? So it's similar to people who claim to be, to, to be believers, but they don't want to have anything to do with the church or the people in the church. So when someone tells me that they believe in Jesus, but they don't go to church, I just think, okay, so this, this is a true idea to you. It's something that you generally agree with, but it hasn't become a reality to you yet. Real Christians, they're part of a local church, part of a real group 
of believers who are caring towards one another. To be a Christian, it's not an isolated decision. Living the Christian life, it happens in the context of community, and it, it draws us together. It's not about the programs or the events we have. It's about the relationships and the bonding that happens as we live together. You know, programs and events, those are a means to foster good relationship. So you need a community of other, other followers of Jesus to help you carry out the commitment of loving God. We have concern for one another, and we're drawn to one another in love. Now, you see this in a lot of ways, but especially in times when people need help. You know, those of you that have been around for a while, you know this to be true. In times of need, whether it's, you know, the death of a, of a loved one or financial difficulty or a medical hurdle or maybe even some good things like the birth of a new baby or moving into a new home, the people of the church, they rally together and they help out. You know, my wife and I, we've walked through some difficulties over the years, and I'm so grateful for individuals in this church who were encouraging and helpful uh, to us and helped us stay on track during those times. Now, it's increasingly common for people to say that they believe in Jesus, but they don't care for the church. And honestly, a lot of times I can understand that. There are a lot of bad church experiences out there that people need to work through. And here at Seabreeze, we're not exempt from those bad church experiences. The reason is that churches are made up of people. They're made up of you. They're made up of me. We are all imperfect people, and we all make mistakes. But according to this passage, if we love each other, there is nothing to make us stumble. If we work to forgive each other, if we seek to clear up relationships when we hurt each other, if we're genuinely open to each other, open ourselves up, living life together, trying to live as a community according to what God says in his word, then there is nothing to make us stumble. Our love for each other, it can't be conditional on what we get from each other. A love for others, it's actually a really good indicator of our love for God and how seriously we take his words. So how you treat people, and particularly how you treat the church and other Christians, it tells a lot about your view of God. Now this is really important because the opposite, the result of not loving others, this verse says is a blinding of the mind, a blinding of understanding. The decision to not engage in a local church community, it's a decision to walk away from the light, to get off the path. It's a decision to go out into the dark world without a flashlight. You know, and if we do that, we begin to stumble. We lose the path. We lose our understanding of what we knew before. Now, this often occurs as people get hurt in the church. Someone hurts you or you hurt somebody, and there's not a clearing up of that relationship. Now, that, the result of that is them pulling away from the church, and eventually that ends in isolation. So to take God's words seriously, real Christians, they understand God's words. They make progress in living like Jesus, and they engage in a local church community. The next way that the inside-out kind of change works in a real Christian is that real Christians, they love what God loves. Real Christians love what God loves. In my marriage, uh, this, this has happened, uh, you know, or typically this happens in a marriage. What one person loves, the other person sort of learns to love over time. This was true for me and my wife with the beach. I love the beach, and my wife initially was not a huge fan of the beach. Now, I love surfing and swimming and laying out on the beach and hanging out on the beach, and she doesn't even know how to swim. 
So we were pretty polar opposite in that regard. But over time, as she's gone to the beach, she has discovered a love for the beach as well. And I'm really grateful for that. This last 4th of July, we watched the parade down on Main Street, and then we posted up down on 9th Street at the beach the whole day, and we had a blast. Now, I haven't gotten her out there surfing with me yet, but we've only been married 10 years. We'll see what this next decade brings. Now, a similar concept is true with God. If we love God, we will learn to love the things that he loves. And John says this in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the world is a competing love to God. You know, love of the, of the world, it's incompatible with love for God. You can't have both things be reality, loving God and loving the world. And in a sense, what John is saying here is don't cheat on God with the world. If I told my wife that I was going to go on a date, that would not go over very well. You know, when you get married, you stop dating. That's the same with God in the world. Real Christians, they don't dabble in the affairs of the world. They stick to one love, to God. Now, as noted in this passage, there are three marks of a person who is living with the world as their true love. So the first is the lust of the flesh. These are desires that rise from within us. It's a desire for things that we don't have. Now, the word here used for lust can be translated as a craving. So our, our flesh produces these cravings for things that are in the world. And each one of us, we have a sinful nature that desires things that are contrary to God's ways. The next thing is, is lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes is it's an idea or a, a desire for things that we see in the world. And the difference between lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes is the origination of that desire. Lust of the flesh, it originates from within us, while lust of the eyes, it, it has its source outside of us. We see things, and that sparks desire. You know, we see a commercial, or we see the fun new toy our neighbor has, and you want that thing. If you find yourself craving things from this world, you are in a battle between loving God and loving the world. Now, the next thing that John mentions is the pride of life. This is arrogance in what we have and in what we do. So you may take pride in your car or your home or a new gadget that you got or even take pride in some new fun socks that you got. You may be prideful about your job or the company that you own or the fact that you work hard each day. Now, it's good to work hard, and there's fulfillment in a hard day's work, but the problem comes when we turn that into what we live for. You know, our jobs are important, but they're not as important as God. So we shouldn't wrap up our identity in our work. That should not be where our true love is. So the main question that's embedded with these worldly temptations is, do I really believe God is bigger than these things and is the ultimate provider for me? And real Christians, they put effort into getting their desires in line with God's desires. They look at their neighbor's new boat or golf clubs, and they say, man, that looks like a lot of fun. But then they turn to God and say, you know, God, that looks like a lot of fun. I would really love that. Is that something that you would want me to purchase? 
The real Christians, they, they see their job as a place that God has allowed them to work, as their finances as ultimately coming from God, not themselves. And that leads to a more grateful life as opposed to an arrogant life. You know, there's the old saying, you are what you eat. Now, the idea with that is that what you input into your life often determines the output. You know, if you eat fast food 100% of the time, our bodies will pay the price for that. Likewise, if we indulge in the cravings for things of this world, that shows up in our real lives. If loving God, though, is the number one goal in life, then consume what God wants you to. Love what he loves. Do what he wants you to do. Consuming what the world offers, it leads to a never-ending desire for more until you die. And then none of it goes with you. So a few questions here. Are you indulging in desires for things that you don't have? Are you being prideful in your work or how much money or possessions that you have? Those things, they don't give us meaning. They just give us something to do. And they take us off the path that God has lit up for us. We will stumble in the dark in pursuit of the things of this world. Now in the next verse, John speaks to a benefit of choosing to love God over the world. First uh, John 2.17 says this, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What God values are the things that last for all of eternity. You know, everything in this world will pass away. When we die, nothing goes with us. All the things that we desired in this world, they won't last, but the things of God, they last forever. You're doing the will of God, it affects not only this life, as this verse says. What we're doing now, we're really setting the trajectory for all of eternity. So how much of your time is spent on the things of this world? And how much of your time is spent filtering those, thing, those things through God's perspective Learning what God loves so that you can focus your energy on that. Real Christians, over time, they learn to love what God loves, and they make their decisions based off of that. Now, as we wrap up, I have a few questions for you. Now, if you claim to be a Christian, I want you to ask yourself these questions. Allow these questions to be reflective for you. If you're exploring Christianity, I hope these questions help solidify for you really what it means to follow Jesus. So here are the questions. Do you take God's words seriously? Do you read the Bible regularly to understand what it says and then do it? Do you live as Jesus lived, following his example? Are you involved in a church community, engaged in relationships and sacrificially loving people? And then finally, do you love what God loves? Are you choosing the things of God over the things of the world. Now, if you answer no to any of those questions, then act on it. Tell somebody so that you get some accountability to work on it. Do something about it. My biggest challenge to you today is this. If you claim to be a Christian, be one. Don't say that you are something and be something different. We desperately need people in this world who have light and who are not stumbling over what everyone else is. We need people who love God who take his words seriously, and who do what he says. Let's pray. Well, God, we Lord, thank you for the privilege of following you. Lord, we thank you that you, you've made a way for us 
to have a relationship with you. Lord, that you've given us your word that can guide us, that can lead us, and that, that we can follow. Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would change our hearts to love you more. That you would change our hearts to, um, to, to want to put your word into practice. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take your word seriously. Lord, that we would take time out of our busy days to read the Bible, that we would try and follow Jesus' example as we read um, about him in your word. Lord, and then I pray that you would uh, give us the courage to engage in a church community. Lord, for those of us here at Seabreeze, Lord, just help us to engage in relationships with each other. Lord, may that even, even start today for some people, just to start introducing ourselves to people and be known. And God, I pray that you would help us to love what you love. Lord, as the world has so many desires, has so many things that can carry us away and that we can get wrapped up in, Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on you and what it is that you want us to do. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.